I said to you earlier that names and the formation of your personality happens very often, a lot of it happens in interaction with others. In, in other words, your, your parental home, uh, your friends, um, authority figures, or uh, powerful people of influence in your, in your formation have been the responsible people in, in your formation. So just uh, um, looking at these two texts that we spoke about last night, as a man or a person thinks in his or her heart, so is he. Um, Proverbs 23, 7. And Proverbs 27, 19, just as water reflects the face, so the heart reflects the person. The question is, uh, who put it there, number one, and what is the water? What is the, what is the reflective surface um, in which you see yourself? Um, so psychologists say it like this. You do not act like the person you are, but you act like the person you think you are. So does the kitty see a kitty or does the kitty see a lion? Or does the kitty see uh, a ghost? Does the kitty see a non-kitty? Because you are going to act like that person you think you are. There, uh, we, we've had cats in our, in our family who really did think they were lions or uh, we had a bull terrier at the same, sorry, a mastiff at the same time, and uh, and the cat took no prisoners. The the dog was just like waiting for the cats to come out, and and we had two cats at the time, and the and the cat came out, and the dog went after the cats. Uh, that happened once. The second time, that black and white came out of the came out of the house. She was looking for the dog. <laughs> She's going, eh. I don't know why I ran yesterday, but it was because the other cat ran. But come here. I wanna, I'm, I'm going to teach you something. I'm going to tell you a question. And so she dived onto the dog's nose, scratched back feet, front feet, whatever, and that, in fact, I said bull terrier because the next day the dog looked like a bull terrier because it just had a straight nose. There was no, you know, indentation because the dog's nose was infected because Sebastian decided. She was a, we thought she was a male, so we called her Sebastian, but she then presented us with kittens. Um, so, so she also thought she was a male. So, um, where do we get the mirrors of our lives? So, there, what we see there is a, is a cat looking at itself in the mirror. The reality is that every one of us has an internal mirror. And that becomes the person with, as I said yesterday, the person from which the, 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 uh, the, 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 uh, the Fort Knox, the, the, the gold standard of being out of which you make personal progress and grow and change and move into the becoming that you are going to become. 
um, but also the person through whom and with whom you do business with others. You interact with others based on this image of yourself that you carry. You act like the person you think you are. But where did we get the mirror from in the first place? So there are two concepts here. The first one is what I mentioned these last night, self-image. That's the, the picture you carry or the reflection of yourself that you carry. And secondly, self-esteem, which is the value, the price tag that you attach to that person. And the two together make up a thing we call the self-concept. And it is a very powerful thing. As we said, it's more powerful than uh, what you would like to be like. It's the way you actually see yourself. And so, between the ages of naught and six, the child doesn't have its own mirror. And so, it gets the reflection of who it is from its parents. The parents hold up a mirror. Every time you interact with your parents from the ages of 0 to 6, they hold up a mirror automatically. And it happens like this. When you enter the room, what do you see on their faces? Do you see acceptance and welcome and appreciation and delight? Or do you see, I put the newspaper up higher so that I don't have to look at you? Or do you see rebuke, reprimand, disapproval? All of those tell you, subconsciously, they tell you something about you. And you, you if that happens often enough, and, you are not, and you're not helped, and that is not counterbalanced with something else, what happens is that you take that on as self-image and self-esteem. You are, you're marking yourself either up or down on the label that you carry depending on how parents have reacted towards you. The words they say, the names you're called, the, uh, the things that people applaud and celebrate about you, all of those are actually building, creating a picture. Between the ages of 6 and 12, the focus shifts from your parents to your peers. Now your friends, your your playmates, the, the, uh, uh, like, for example, your classmates at school. How, how many of you remember uh, being on the playground and then you were going to have a, a pick-up game of soccer or cricket and two guys were appointed as the captains and then they pick their teams, right? I'll take him, I'll pick him, I'll pick him, I'll pick him, and then... You're standing there waiting for someone to pick you, and eventually someone says, oh, well, I'll have to take him now because he's the only one left. What does that tell you? It tells you you're not value, valuable. In the very area in which you want to be valued, valued, you are devalued. That tells you something about yourself. Are you invited to the parties? Are you, you know, do people make play dates with you? Um, do they like hanging out? What is the expression on their faces when you walk into the room, etc.? So all of that becomes uh, kind of adds to the picture of this mirror. So again, now the mirror is beginning to be internalized, but it's still largely formed by other people's 
opinions, in this case, your peers. So this is what we call the reflected you, the you that you see reflected back to you from others. Uh, and by, by the way, included in parents is all uh, significant others who are, at, if you like, a, uh, in a position of authority, leadership, influence in your life. So it includes grandparents, uncles, aunts, teachers, etc. All of those people would be included. Between the ages of 12 and 18, one of the tasks of adolescence is what we call individuation, which is where you then become, you internalize the mirror. You actually learn who you are, for better or for worse. And you will use a lot of the information that has come from the external mirror, the parents and the peers, but you will also be testing that in interaction with others. You will be very much influenced by uh, the common wisdom, if you like. You know, what does it mean to be in? What does it mean to be, um, you know, in fashion, in, uh, like, listening to the right music, wearing the right clothes, uh, hanging out with the right people? So, so all of those things influence us as we do this thing. But more importantly, what is happening now is that you're internalizing that. To, the, to, the, to a point whereby usually around the age 16, 17, you've got your own mirror. And once again, with all of its distortions, as well as with some of those things that um, have helped you to succeed. So this is the perceived you. This is the you that you perceive now, perceive yourself to be. The question is, the reflected you, the perceived you, and the real you, how much do they overlap? The, the, the truth of the matter is, probably, in fact, I, I would say almost certainly, Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever lived wh where there was complete correlation between the integrity between those, two things, those three personas, those three selves. All of us have got some overlap, but we've also got a lot of areas where they don't connect at all. The task of maturity, the task of growing into the becoming that God wants for you to become is that you increase the area of overlap, that you have what we call integrity. You become a WYSIWYG. You become a person who is Secure in your own being to the point where if people see me as I really am, I will lose no sleep. I will lose no v sense of value. So, without, where there is no vision, people disintegrate. That's actually how you should translate that verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. It actually goes, where there is no vision, the people run off in all directions. There is discombobulation. That's a word I made up. You like it? You can have it. 
discombobulation. There is, there is disintegration. And what are we supposed to, what is the task of our lives? The task of our lives is integration, is connection, is bringing all of the strands of my life into harmony. That's what integration is. That's what integrity is. The same root word for those two things. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, All of us then reflect the glory of the Lord with uncovered faces. And that same glory coming from the Lord who is the Spirit transforms us into his likeness in ever greater degrees of glory. Say more about this, and it's a subject you've heard me speak from this pulpit often. But it's a, the word for the word glory. The very simple meaning of the word is the overflow of life, the the outflow of a life force. So when you see a person's glory, you see their strength in action. When you see a person's glory, you see their beauty unmasked or uncovered. Uh, so glory is that. And, and so when God says, I have made you for my glory, I created you for my glory. And he speaks about Israel and he says, I have redeemed you. I have brought you to myself for, to be for the display of my splendor or the display of my glory. That's why God made you. He made you to be a little reflector. He made you to be this receptacle that leaks. And what does it leak? It leaks the stuff that God puts into you. So you see, our glory, my glory, is that me that I, that I am truly on the inside. And what God wants to do is that he wants to um, overwhelm that glory with his own. So that eventually, like Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life force that overflows out of this receptacle is him, not me. The life that I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Very careful, very careful translation. That's the, the best translation of the phrase. It's not faith in the Son of God. It's the faith of the Son of God. It's a, it's a possessive verb. He, he is basically saying, I, I, like I, I went to him once and I said, Lord, I don't have enough love. And he said, don't worry, I've got enough for both of us. Let me love them through you. That is the glorious liberation of this whole story. I am telling you the answer at the, right in the middle of the seminar here, which is all of this work of transformation, of this hard work of becoming the person that you are supposed to become, it doesn't depend on you at all. It's not hard. But it, it, it begins with what we, where we ended last night. It begins with the surrender of all the other glories, all the other life forces, all of the other abilities, all of the other identities. So Paul says, I have been crucified. 
I'm dead. I don't have any I don't have any strength, I don't have any expertise, I don't have any abilities, I don't have any brains, I don't have any faith. Jesus says, Don't worry. I'll believe through you. I don't have love. That's okay. I'll love them through you. I don't have wisdom. That's a prayer I that's a statement I make probably fourteen, fifteen times a day. Lord, I lack wisdom. He says Good. I've got more than enough for both of us. If anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And God will give you his wisdom through your brain. It's the most amazing thing. And then you sit back afterwards and you say, wow, I'm smarter than I think. So that's the, that's the, the, the big picture. That's the, that's the global answer to the question, the dilemma of this becoming. So identity has been mirrored to us in the past by, by our parents and, and all of these influencers in our lives. And they've done that by, we could also sum this up in uh, simple terms. How many of you, of you have read uh, the love language, the five love languages? You know the book, the five love languages? So the love languages are very simply codes that we have encoded, we have taken on within ourselves for how people can give or speak love to us and how we receive it. Okay, For those of you that haven't read the book, I'll sum it up like this. Five love languages. The first is acts of service. If somebody serves you, you see that as them showing you love. The second one is words of affirmation. When people speak love to you, you become, uh, that you appreciate that. The third one is quality time. Just spending time with people uh, or people being willing to give quality time to you is a language. It says they love you. The fourth is a, um, a touch, right? Uh, so it's, it's physical affection. People hugging you, people, people putting their arm around your shoulder, people uh, kissing you, whatever. Uh, that becomes your, your love language. And the fifth one is gifts. Thank you. Um, the giving of gifts is uh, the fifth uh, love language. Now, we all, once again, we have a code that we have learn within it. By the way, we all speak all five love languages, but one or maybe two of them at most will be the most significant ones. And sometimes if people only speak the other two or uh, three, three or four, and they don't speak our love language, we will end up not ever really believing, believing that we are loved. In other words, if I, if I speak Greek to you, you won't know what I'm saying, Right? except for a word here or there. Uh, but, and so the same happens in terms of, of love. So, so when parents, for example, uh, um, you know, the child comes into the room and the parents go, <laughs> well, let, let me use another example. There was a, a friend of mine, in fact, he was a mentor of mine. God help me. But anyway, he's a lovely man, but, but he... I said, I, I said to him, you know, 
I never, I never see you like being affectionate with your wife. And uh, I said, um, uh, is there anything going on that, that I should know about? He said, no. He said, she knows I love her. I said, how? He said, I bought her a fridge. <laughs> Two years ago, I bought her a new fridge. Another guy said, I told my wife in 1974 that I love her, and if anything changes, she'll be the first to know. <laughs> now, those are, those are caricatures, right? So, if we're not... If we're not speaking the right, if we're not speaking the right language, we we will be we will speak the opposite. When you don't tell the person you love them in a way that they can understand, appreciate, and receive, they will. It, it doesn't stay neutral. They will get the opposite message. You know, the opposite of love is not hatred; it is apathy. Okay, uh, so two guys, psychologists by the name of Joe and Harry, <laughs> created what they called the Joe Harry window or the Joe Harry window. And, and this is really simply a, a, a simple way of getting to understand who you are. So the, the blocks go like this. Bottom left is that that part of you that is known to you and known to others. It's the public self, the you that you present to others and they can see. Then there is a second block, which is the, um, the part of you that is known to you but unknown to others. It's what we call your private self. That's the inner you. The third you is the part that is unknown to you and known to others. That is what we call your blind self. And the fourth you is the potential self. It is that which is unknown to you and unknown to others. The potential self, the you that you can become. Now, do you remember yesterday I said we are all human becomings? We're we're on a journey to something. We're on a journey to become someone. And that was true from, as I said, the moment that the egg was fertilized. All of that potential was put in there in the form of a thing called DNA, a genetic code. That genetic code is going to have its outworking. There are some things that you can change, but there's not a lot of them. You know, you can't change whether you're going to be tall or short. Like Jesus said, no one by taking thought can add one cubit, one millimeter, actually, to his or her stature. So you can't think yourself into being um, different physically. I mean, there are some things like eat less and don't eat so many carbs and all of that sort of thing. But they, they're, they're uh, cosmetic features. They're not fundamental now by by doing sorry so moving toward the top right 
is the task of life. The task of life is, is moving into the potential self, is, un, is becoming more of the person that you can become. It's living your true potential. And we're going to spend the, 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 uh, a lot of time in to- talking about what is that potential with regard to you, the person in Christ. This is not self-effort. This is discovery. This is not self-invention. It's self-discovery. But it's the discovery of the self in Christ that is the thing that will that will satisfy who you really are. You see, when God made you, when, in fact, when God made the first human, what did he say? Let us create humans in our image. In fact, again, it's an active verb. Let us create humans to be our image. He uses the Hebrew word selem, which is the same as the Greek word ikon. And the ikon is the, the icon. It's the picture, the image. The selim in, uh, in uh, ancient, the ancient Middle East was um, the busts. You know that you can go to museums all over Europe and you can see these like, there's, there's some museums we've been into where there are thousands of these busts of the emperors. And they, many of the same one and all of that. And why, why, why are there so many of them? Because they would make um, a whole lot of these selims, these busts, and they would send them to every town in the empire. And they would put them up in the town square. Why? So that the people walking through the town square would see the selim and they would remember who's on the throne. So God says of the human, I'm going to make you to be my selim. I'm going to make you so that when angels and elephants and mice and men see you, they remember who's on the throne. You are to be for a display of my glory. You are to be for the demonstration of my nature. And of course, we know how badly we messed that up. The human decided, I'd rather be for the display of my own glory. And that's called sin. Sin has to do with missing the mark. Missing the purpose for which we were created. Amartya. It is, you can even aim at the bullseye and if you miss it, it's amartya. We are all guilty. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And so God came in Jesus and he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, from his overflowing life, we have all received glory After glory, after glory. Now, Paul here is picking up on that theme, and the computer has now officially died. So, here's Joe and Harry. And what I was showing you was um, the fact that the goal of life 
is for us to move toward... Here's an, here's an interesting term. Perfection. This is, this is what it says. There are so many things going through my mind right now. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified, and those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. Those whom he chose, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it puts glorified in the past tense. That he may bring many sons to glory. And, by the way, the daughters get a free ride in there as well, okay? That's not my sermon for now. So, but, so, the, so the, the, the beginning is there. That's when the baby was conceived. That's the beginning. And this is the end of the story, which is glorification or perfection. It's, tr- it's a word that is translated in other places, maturity. Perfection, maturity, glorification. Same word, same concept. In three different words. Perfection, maturity, glorification. Um, <clears throat> the Greek word is teleos. And you can, hear, you can hear in the word what it means. That's the lovely thing about Greek. It's a picture language. It's a language that tells you what it means in the word itself. So tele, tele, like telephone, telegraph, telescope, it means to reach a destination. It means to uh, get to a goal. It means to measure up to what you were measured for. It means to grow into the person that you were intended to become. See, So all of those are saying the same thing. So how do we get there? Joe and Harry said this. They said the first thing is disclosure. To take that which is known to me and but unknown to others and to increase this block so that they get to know more about me. How do I do that? I do that by reflecting to you. I take myself, and as Paul says it here, I reflect what is going on inside me to you, we with unveiled faces, without pretense, reflecting to one another the glory of the Lord are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to the other. So it's disclosure, but that's not the end. That, that's the beginning, disclosure. The second step is feedback. So in other words, it's mutual reflection. So when you were a child, it was one-way traffic. The parents reflected you back to you, and you didn't have any grid. You had no filters. You, had no, you didn't even have language for that. You just took that on and said, oh, well, must mean that I'm no good. Because dad doesn't want anything to do with me. Must mean that I'm no good. And sometimes dad said that, didn't he? He said, that's not good enough. Why, you're such a waste of oxygen. You'll never amount to anything. 
and other words to that effect. I want to find you Not only do we get that from moms and dads, we also got it from teachers, right? I won't find it now. I'll find it in next time. There's a story written about Thomas Edison. And it goes like this. It says, there was this little boy who came home from school. And he said, the teacher, he said to his mother, the teacher said, I must give you this letter, but only you are supposed to read it. And she gave, and he gave her the letter. And the mom read the letter. She read it aloud, but she didn't read to the boy what the letter actually said. Because the letter said this, the actual letter said, Your son is mentally incompetent, intellectually incompetent. Uh, and he is, I cannot teach him, he is unteachable. And so I am expelling him from this school. What the mother said to the boy was this. Your son, she said, the letter read, your son is the most brilliant child I have ever come across. And I cannot teach him anymore because he is too smart. And so I would appreciate it if you would... Take him under your wing and teach him yourself. From that day, Thomas Edison was homeschooled and became the genius, the inventive genius that he became. Much later, after his mother died, he found the letter. And he said, he wrote this in his diary. He said, Thomas Edison's mother created a genius by the way she spoke about him. You see, she reflected something totally different than what the teacher would have reflected. And he became the reflection that his mother held up to him. So many of us settle for the lesser. We hear this language. We hear the language of, you know, you're no good, you're hopeless, you're useless. You'll never amount to anything. You're a failure. Or, even worse, you're just average. Don't, don't, don't stand out. Don't move forward. Just be content. You know, just be, be okay with that. Women, of course, have been the victims of that over centuries. To the point where they were told, you know, you don't need education. Because you know what, you're just going to marry someone and have babies and you're going to be a housewife and you know that's, you don't need really education for that. And so we missed, we missed on the huge potential of the women who could have become much more, I mean we read of the heroes, don't we? The, the heroines, if you like, who have stood for things and invented things and, 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 uh, um, uh, changed their world. They, in other words, they refused to accept the common wisdom and the, and, the, and the restraints and the limitations that were placed on them. We need to do the same 
in our interactions between one another as the body of Christ. And we need to say, I, my reflection back to you has to be much more than what you see in your own mirror. Our, our, um, our faith in one another, our love for one another, our capacity to see the best in one another, that's what we owe one another. That's what we owe. Paul said, owe no one anything but to love one another. And then he goes on to talk about encouragement, etc. So, notice what happens here. To the measure that we disclose and to the measure that we receive feedback, we are moving into our potential self. We're extending the line of self-knowledge, self-awareness, until what I said to you about Jesus becomes the truth. That there is complete correlation, there's complete overlap between the public self, the blind self, the potential self, and the private self. And we, and we reach our full potential. We come into the picture that God looks at when he sees you right now. You know what God sees? When he looks at you right now, he sees a perfect reflector of his glory. He does not see any blemishes. Melaine said it earlier. God doesn't see the blemishes. What he sees is a perfect bride. You know, people go, oh, you know what? Body of Christ has got a long way to go because it says that he's coming for a perfect bride and we're so far from perfect. I said, that's because you're looking from the bottom of the picture, the bottom of the barrel. If you could see yourself as God sees you, you'd be very different in terms of self-judgment as well as the judgment of others. God already has a perfect church. All we have to do is to discover what that looks like. And the way we do that is by reflecting the glory. In other words, the way that your self-image has been formed is the way that it will be transformed. By having reflectors of integrity. Reflectors who are for us, not against us. Reflectors who are much more like God than they're like the serpent. See, the serpent said, yeah, you know what? You're not good enough. You don't really know enough. So let, come with me, eat this tr- the fruit of this tree, and then you'll really know. He called into question, what did God say? Has God said? So we, what we have to do is refuse the lie and the liar and embrace the truth and reflect that to one another. You have it made. You've got it all. So, were you able to see that little picture, on, although it was by, by remote control here? So Paul says, the exercise of church and being church to one another is, one of the one another's, is reflecting the glory. Be the mirror so that the, so that the cat sees not even just the lion, but the, but the cat sees the glory of the Lord as the true image of itself. So all of us, says Paul, who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. 
How do we do that? We do that by, again, using the love language that this person can understand. Spending quality time with one another. Giving words of affirmation to one another. That's part of the, by the way, part of the reason why Paul says you may all prophesy. Prophesy to one another, one by one. The word one by one doesn't mean in, in single file. It means one to another. It means one on one. Prophesy to one another so that all may learn and all be encouraged. All be built up. All be enabled, empowered to come into the place where that which they did not believe about themselves, suddenly they can believe. From one degree of glory to another. Every time we meet with one another, especially in small groups or one-on-one, as well as in church, in the gathered church, every time we do that, there needs to be this goal that I have. I want to encourage someone into one more degree of glory than before they came in. That's what I'm here for. I'm here to be a reflector to you of the glory that is really in you. And the glory that God wants to accomplish through you. Okay, so we move in the, in the notes into... Um, and I'm going to have to put up another uh, diagram here. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world. Do you remember uh, what we said last night? We regard no one any longer from a human point of view. Or from a worldly point of view. From the, world, from the point of view that dominates in this world's ways of thinking. When he says the world there, he uses the, the word eon. Eoni, which is a period of time, a, 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 an age. We are living in a particular age. And the thought processes, the philosophies, the... the the, uh, the views, the paradigms that apply in that particular segment of time is what Paul is talking about here. Refuse to think of yourself according to the way the world and, and this period of time that we're living in thinks. Refuse it. Do not be conformed. Refuse. Con- Do not let them put you in their mold. Just Refuse. When they say things about you, when they label you, say, nah, that's not me. There's much more to this dude than you think. I, I'm, I'm carrying something very different than, in, in fact, you know what? It wouldn't even fit into your mold. It would break the thing. That's how much I'm carrying. That's not prideful. That's just simply believing the good news. Remember what Jesus said the first sermon he preached? Very short sermon, two verses long. It went like this. The kingdom of God is here, so repent. That is, change the way you think and believe the good news. That's our message. That's my message to every person. My message to you today, my sister. 
The kingdom of God is here. Look at me. The kingdom of God is here. So change the way you think about yourself and believe the good news. You are chosen. You are precious. You are a carrier of the glory of God. So, do not be conformed, but be transformed by renewing the way you think. Renewing your noose. Renewing your mind. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you transform, or how do you, rather, how do you renew a mind? You renew it by exactly the same dynamics as that by which it was formed in the first place. The, the dynamics of repetition, the dynamics of affirmation, the dynamics of um, uh, thinking, reflecting, believing, and then enacting. That's what you've done, you see. When somebody said to you, you're no good, you said, oh, I'm no good. Then you said it to yourself. Then you had it, your own little mantra. I'm, I'm useless, I'm hopeless, I'm a worm and no man. I'm going to go out into the garden and eat worms. And then, not only did you say it to yourself, but you, you believed it more, and then you began to act on that basis, like the naughty child. You started to act out what you had been told about yourself. And then you achieved results. And then they became, you know, that action, those actions became habits and habits became lifestyle and lifestyle got consequences. And then you settled down and you built a house on, with the consequences. You lived with the consequences. One little boy said, when Johnny has to live with the consequences, can I have his room? <laughs> When Johnny has to go live with the consequences, can I have his room? So that's how you, your mind was formed in the first place. How is it renewed? By exactly the same dynamics. By hearing the good news, believing the good news, speaking the good news, making the good news into your, into your um, paradigm, your, your way of speaking about yourself, and then enacting or living it out. And then doing it over and over and over again. Trying something that you couldn't do before. Like loving someone you couldn't love. Like forgiving someone you couldn't forgive. By doing all of those things. And the more you do it, the more they become a habit. And eventually, you're transformed. You're a different person. And you have proved that the will of God works. The will of God is the best way to live. That's what he means when he says that you made... Discern what is the will of God. By testing, you will discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's that word again. That which leads to perfection is simply spaced repetition of doing the will of God. And there's those verses that we started out with last night. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and that therefore all have died so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We don't think of Christ from a human point of view, and we don't think of ourselves from a human point of view, but we confess this. If anyone is in Christ, and I'm in Christ, everybody say, I'm in Christ. Therefore, I'm a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Now the new has come. Now I know what happens. I know what happens. Every so often that old guy. Hmm? Every so often. Pokes his head up. And goes, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm, you're, still, you're still me, you know. And, 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 and what you have to do at that point is to say, I refuse your label. I refuse having you as the chief influence in my life. So put your, put your foot on the coffin. Reminds me of a lovely story. I hope you can all understand Afrikaans. There's some, some things that can't be translated. So this is a story of when the, um, the Groot Grip, you know, the big flu epidemic happened in the 1920s. And it was up in the, uh, in the Makwaland area. And anyway, people were dying, Northern Cape. People were dying and it was a massive epidemic. Lots of lives lost. And it eventually got, got so bad that there was, they dug a long trench. Uh, and people were bringing the dead out of the houses and they would just come and lay, lay them in the trench. And the doctors were there to just sign death certificates. That's all they did. And then they said, Fulmaran, which means cover. You know, they put the body in there, signed the death certificate, gave it to the relatives, and then told the grave diggers, fill it in. So this was going on, and there were these two grave diggers who happened to be brown people, people of what are called the, the Cape Colored um, tribe. And so these guys were doing this. This one guy, they put him in the grave. It was just like three feet deep. And, and that guy threw the first spade of soil on him. And he, and he went... Nee, man, I can see dirty. And the guy said... The guy goes like this. He puts his foot on his chest and he pushes him down. He says... Legend, and he throws another, <laughs> another spadeful on him, and he goes, dirty, and he does it a third time. <laughs> he said, "Miss Jane, no slimmer as a doctor." <laughs> Who are you, smarter than the doctor? Who do you think you are? So. Keep your foot on that guy. <laughs> please, please, come. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. 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 So, that's where we're coming to now. Absolutely valid. So it's not enough to just deny what was. What has to, what we have to do is replace what was with what Jesus says. Okay, replace the lie with the truth. Don't just try to deny the lie. You know, put your foot on the grave, but in fact replace it with truth. So this is a diagram that just describes very simply, in very simple terms, how the mind operates. 
Okay, now, so Paul says, be transformed by renewing your mind. Here's, here's how the mind operates. There are two parts to the, to the mind. The left-hand side here, those four blocks, are from the top down, perception, which means to become aware of through the senses, cognition, which is to understand what it is that we've just become aware of, to give it meaning. The third one is evaluation, which means to attach a value to, moral or otherwise. And then the fourth one is volition. That's a fancy word for choice, decision-making. Perception, so stimuli come in, you perceive them, you understand them, you evaluate them, and then you make a decision. And out of decision comes action. That's the, that's the arrow that flows out at the bottom. Action or behavior. So this is what we call the conscious mind. So you can write my word here is conscious. That's the conscious mind. That is the mind that is awake and aware, that is interacting at a very matter-of-fact, if you like, level. On the right-hand side, there's another box, and that's called the unconscious, or more popularly, the subconscious mind, which is the part that is below the level of awareness. But it is just as real and just a, well, we'll see some, some more things about it. So what is contained in the unconscious or subconscious mind? Memory. Everything that you've ever paid attention to in your entire life, even from in some cases, pre-birth, you, you've put in your, in your database. It's, it's all there. Beliefs. Those things that you place weight on, that you, that you depend on, that you, if you like, take to the moral bank of your life when you need, when you need to encash something. And they, there's a whole lot of those. And then attitudes. Attitudes are instantaneous responses to things, people, situations, and they are habitual. In other words, you will always come out with those. So you have, in your subconscious mind, for instance, you have answers, or you have ways to finish the following. You can finish these statements. Men are. But don't say it out loud. Women are, children are, human beings are, the world is, South Africa is. <laughs> We've all got answers, and they come out like, like that, and they influence your decisions before you think about them consciously. They're subconscious, habitual, and very powerful. Values are another thing that is in there. You use your values to evaluate. What do you think is good and bad? What do you think is, is something you want to hold on to? What, is the, what are the non-negotiables, the things you will live for and die for? Like we said earlier. Also contained in there is your self-concept, which we have spoken about. Your self-image and your self-esteem are contained in the subconscious mind. That mirror 
is not something that you think about looking in, but you're looking in it all the time. And you're operating out of what you see. I've also put in there the God concept. So when you think about God, you have a whole world of meaning that is attached to that word. Especially when you say a thing like our father. What do you think of subconsciously when you say our father? Because that's going to affect your faith. See, if you were raised by a father who was disinterested or rejecting or cruel, abusive. I have counseled people who have actually said that to me. They've said, I cannot call God father because of the way my dad was toward me. If, if God is anything like the father I have been raised by, I don't actually want anything to do with him. I'll talk to Jesus, but I don't want to go near the Father. So, of course, that has to be healed. That has to be remedied. As Milan said earlier, it's not something you can just say, well, okay, then we don't go there. We push that away. What we do is we replace the old model with a new one. And that applies to all of these things. Right at the bottom is a thing we call in that little block at the bottom, the ANS, the Autonomic Nervous System. Why that's important is, again, we won't go into a lot of detail about this. The autonomic nervous system is your automatic physiological responses to certain things. So if you, if you run into a, a lion, not likely in Hillcrest, but, uh, or you're threatened by a person, you know, that's got a weapon, or something like that. You have a thing called the fight or flight response, which is really just a whole lot of hormones that have been, that are, that are, um, triggered. Adrenaline and then epinephrine and this and that and the other. And you have a thing called an amygdala and you have emotions. And then before you know it, you can be lifting like a, there was a story told of a, little old lady who lifted a car physically off her son who had been trapped under it when the jack um, collapsed and he was under the car. She lifted that thing herself, the little lady. Now, there's no way in the world that she could have done that under normal circumstances, but the autonomic nervous system kicked in and she became 10 times stronger than she would normally have been. I think world records... Uh, happen all over the place in Africa, for example. You know, not not just through the great athletes that we have in Africa, but through people who have been chased by something, and they jump over high walls, high fences without touching anything. <laughs> why? Because adrenaline makes all of those things possible. Now, why that's important is like this: just as much as there is a a response from emotion to adrenaline. Just so, the opposite is also true. Sometimes we are in fight and flight mode and we don't know why. There's no actual threat, but we're in fight-flight mode. Sometimes it's just by irritation. It's just by the stresses. We live with a huge amount of stress. And that forms our responses, and so we're fighting even though we can't see the enemy. 
So it goes both ways. We, 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 we have this feeling like here in the pit of our stomach. It's called stress. It's, called, uh, it's a tightening of the diaphragm that happens as a result of, that's the first response to adrenaline. <sighs> we don't know how to relax it. And it's actually affecting our emotions. The physiological affects the, the emotional in the same way as the emotional affects the physiological. Now, why that's important is because we have to understand that a lot of these responses are autonomic. They, they happen quicker, more quickly than you can think about them. And so part of the, part of the um, process of coming to maturity, Paul said it like this, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, I spoke like a child. When I became a man, when I reached maturity in physiological terms, I put childish ways behind me. And so there's a need for us sometimes to stop, take stock, and think about how did I respond to all of the circumstances and the people I encountered by God's grace today? How did I respond? And, and how can I adjust my poise, as it were, in the, in the world in which I live so that I'm different. So that that same stupid taxi driver and the way he drives does not affect my mood like it did yesterday. I'm going to be different. I'm going to take charge. I'm not just going to be a victim. Okay? None of you laughed when I said taxi driver. Don't you have those? Yeah. How you do? It's a, it's a threat to my wife's sanctification far more than to mine. She just smiled. Well, are you listening? <laughs> okay, so what, we, what is our task when it comes to all of this? By the way, um, so that's the inner you, that's the... That's what Jesus called the heart. The heart, which is actually part of your, part of your mind and the way it operates. I'm sorry about my phone. Um, <laughs> my grandson fiddled with this stupid thing and said, Pappy, did you know that this has face recognition? And you can switch it on by face recognition. And then he fiddled with it, and now I've got to go. Eh. <laughs> and imagine doing that first thing in the morning. That phone, that phone has no chance of recognizing me as the person that last used it last night. Okay, so. Uh, so that's the inner you. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed the things that we do. Sometimes the bad things that people do come out of the heart. So when Paul talks about renewing the mind, this is a big part of renewal that has to go on. You see, the, the law, let me put it like this, the law 
and churches have their own laws as well as the Ten Commandments, the law can only deal with the conscious mind. The law just gives you a whole new set of ways to understand. Decision, uh, you know, basis of decision making of what is right and wrong. That's what the law does. But the law is incapable of changing the heart. And until we change the heart, let me show you here in, in a moment. I'll show you something. 90%, <laughs> at least 90%, maybe more, of your decision making is influenced by your unconscious or subconscious mind. Only 10% comes from your rational processes. That's why Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he gives the answer, doesn't he? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. I know that I can be changed by the life of Christ within me and by nothing else. If I'm depending on my brains and my strength of resolve and my self-discipline and, you know, Western civilization, I'm doomed. I will never reach my potential. I'll become a statue with lots of wax. I'll become a hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is simply someone who's playing a role, but on the inside they're no different. Okay. Um, so, so think, think of this as a bucket. Okay? Think of this as a bucket of cold water that's got all these beliefs and memories and attitudes and values and self-concept and God-concept. Now, you can't kick the bucket over. That's called a nervous breakdown, if you kick the bucket over. But you can do this. You can drop one stone at a time, one warm stone after another, into that bucket. And we have a thing that psychologists call displacement that takes place, which is simply that, you know, another famous Greek guy called Archimedes. Archimedes. And what Archimedes he found is he got into the bath and he jumped out and he said, I found it. Eureka! <laughs> uh, yeah, uh. Archimedes, he found this. Every body that is placed into water will displace exactly the same volume of water as that body itself possesses. <laughs> so, every little stone that you put into a body of into a bucket of water will displace the same amount of cold water out of the bucket that the stone itself uh, encompasses every good thought that you place into that bucket will displace a bad thought every good attitude that you repeat often enough will displace an old attitude every habit of thought, every, every value that has been distorted, every, every 
particular little angle of self-concept that has been messed up by people in your life will be replaced. Every time you hear God say, you are not useless. You are not worthless, but you are chosen and precious. You're a princess in my eyes, and you sit at the right hand, at my right hand in heavenly places. Perfect in my eyes. So all of that other stuff, you know what happens? It withers. It spills over. It dries up. That's our job. And when, you see, what I've just done with you right now, Every time we gather, we need to be doing that. We need to be adding that value. We need to be saying, I know sometimes it's hard for you to think well of yourself, so let me help you. Let me affirm you. Let me speak prophetically over you rather than pathetically. So much of our time we, we waste on descending to the worldly level. So much of church life is about dealing with one another on the worldly level. We get so caught up in the stupidities and the pathetic little petty things. Instead of recognizing we are in every time we gather, we are in the company of kings and priests and princes and princesses. We are in the presence of royalty. Instead of criticizing, we should bow on our faces and say, Hey, wow, you're amazing. If we, begin, if we begin to change our language about ourselves, as well as our language about others, what we will see is the potential self of each of those individuals coming to the fore. We will see the stuff that is in there that needs to be replaced, renewed. We will see it being renewed. On either side of this, I said to you last night that in order for us to, in order for us to um, have a secure sense of identity, healthy identity, we need. We need um, to answer three questions. Where did I come from? And that has to do with origin. What am I doing here? That has to do with purpose. And where am I going? That has to do with destiny. Isn't it interesting that Jesus deals particularly with the last one, and then he goes back to the first one, and that he deals with those two first? You know why? Because he's actually, he's, by doing that, he's creating the two things that have to hold us through purpose. You know what, you know what holds you through a lot of frustration tolerance? It's, it's essentially hope. It's only when we have a long-term vision of a positive outcome for ourselves, which is another way of saying hope that we can deal with present difficulties. Viktor Frankl was an, a German Jewish, an, an Austrian Jewish psychiatrist who was interned in Auschwitz during World War II. And, um, and he, 
for his own sanity, to preserve his own sanity, and also to try to help some of his fellow inmates, he studied human behavior. He studied the way that people were dealing with things, and he learned from them, and then he tried to pass on the lessons that he had learned from this one to that one. And he spoke about how there were some people, and this is the way he said it, there were some people who died long before they went into the gas chambers. They died on the inside. And he said, on the other hand, I saw so many He said they walked into the gas chambers with their heads held high and with the Shema Israel on their lips. They said, we hope in you, Lord. And he learned this, and this is the, the phrase he coined. He said, and I learned that when a man has the why for living, he can cope with almost any how. When you have a good end in view, present trouble is much more bearable. Isn't that also how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, this, (laughs) it's something I always giggle when I read it. Get over yourself now. I always laugh when I read it because he, he writes about his troubles. He says, persecuted, but not forsaken, you know, cast down, crushed, you know, um, sorry, uh, broken, but not crushed, and, and so on and so forth. And he says, and then he sums it all up like this, and he says, these light and momentary afflictions. I say, you've just like had a complaining session par excellence, and you go light and momentary? He says, because everything is compared to these light and momentary afflictions are unworthy of being compared with the glory that shall be revealed. The weight of glory that is in store for us. So that's why when Jesus begins his gospel, he says, the kingdom of God is here. You know what he is saying? The end is here already. I know we haven't even started, but the end is here already. The end is God is going to rule over it all. The end is the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the end. That's why John 3.16, if anyone believes in me, he will never die, but he will never be condemned, but he will have the life of the age to come. Zoe Ionias. Life of the age to come. And so... He says, let's settle the end, and then I invite you into a, a whole different life. And to use another, another expression coined by another guy called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him, come and die. Come. Let's die together. But don't worry. The dying is nothing. Because all it is, is a doorway to the thing that I promised you that can hold you true through everything. The hope. The hope of a good end. So, Jesus himself 
had his own answers to the three questions. That's at, the, that's at the bottom there. It's in John chapter 13, verse 3. And it says this about Jesus. Jesus, at the, at the uh, beginning of the feast, the Last Supper, it says that he knew that he had come from God. He knew what his origin was. He knew that the Father had put all things under his authority. And he knew that he was returning to God. So origin, purpose, and destiny were all answered in the soul of Jesus as he was facing his last moments. Origin, purpose, and destiny. Jesus knew that he had come from God. He knew that heaven was his origin. So, guys... Change the way you think. Do not accept worldly wisdom that says that you were born from slime. That says that you descended from apes. That says that you uh, are an accident of atoms that collided. That says that uh, it was the Big Bang that made you. (laughs) Uh, don't, Don't buy that stuff. Don't buy that stuff. But know this. Like William Wordsworth said it, trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. We came into the world from heaven, perfectly formed and made, wonderfully formed and made by God and placed into the world. And then God said, there, now live it out. And by the way, You're going to hit some bumps in the road. And by the way, people are going to mess you up. If you read the whole of Wordsworth's poem, it actually tells us. The poem is called Odes on Intimations of Immortality. And uh, and anyway, so we're going to enter the world. And then the, the glory is going to be stripped. And the glory is going to be covered over and messed up. And put behind veils of all kinds. And we will end up needing that glory to be redeemed. And that's what, why Jesus came. He came so that he could restore to us the realization that you came from God. And here it is. So now you're going to be born again from above. That's what he said to Nick. Nick, until you are born from above, you won't even see, you won't even begin to understand what this kingdom of God is. But if you'll let me, I'm going to put a new spirit inside you. I'm going to, you're, going to, you're going to get a do-over. You get to do-over. You get to start again. Secondly, he knew that he was going to rule on God's behalf. He knew that he was going to be the means through whom the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And then he thirdly knew that he was going to return to God. That death was not an end, it was just the return ticket. The the worst thing the devil can do to you is just change your address. It's the worst he can do to you. If he kills you, you've just changed addresses. Instead of living here, you go back to this other place that you came from. 
So Jesus knew that. And it was out of that knowledge, that awareness, that he could strip himself, gird himself with a towel, and wash the feet of people he knew were going to abandon him, and in some cases, betray him. He could serve them without expectation. He could reach a level of identity that held him strong through what other people would see as a loss of identity. See, when Jesus stripped himself and put a towel around him, anyone walking into the room would not have known that he was Jesus bar Joseph, that he was, in fact, a rabbi, that he was a man of stature, even though he had had those bad beginnings. They would have just, they wouldn't have given him a second look. They would have said, here's the lowest slave in the household, because that's their job, right? The foot washing part. Wouldn't have even looked at him. And Jesus didn't care because he did not see his identity coming from what he did or from what he looked like. It was not an external thing, but he, his identity was gained from this. I came from God. I'm here to serve the purposes of God, and I'm returning to God. And the, and the purposes of God that I will serve are the ones that will actually conquer the whole universe. Cover the whole of it with the glory of the Lord. So now we finish like this. If that's how it was for him. And he has entered you. Then that's how it is for you. That's an easy little piece of mathematics, right? If, Christ, if the life that I live, I live by the faith, the love, the hope, the grace of the Son of God. If, if I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, then I live by exactly the same identity. As I said to you last night, you will never know who you are in Christ until you really, really fully appreciate who Christ is in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the power of God. Christ in you is the wisdom of God. Christ in you is the purposes of God. We're going to say more about that in summarizing all of this tomorrow. Aha. I have got to the end. Can you believe it? And it's not even 12 yet. So tomorrow, what we're going to cover in a little more depth is this amazing thing that God did when he basically switched identities with us. You remember we started off like this saying that he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an identity switch that took place. Another way of saying it is it's God's Trojan horse exercise where he smuggled in. He smuggled in the complete destruction of, this, of, the, of the kingdoms of this world and of Satan. He smuggled them in, in a uh, thing that looked like nothing but actually took over the universe. And that's... Starts with your universe. 
So let's stand together and just take a moment to affirm. Oh, and by the way, in terms of the notes, because um, although you will have these notes tomorrow, uh, we won't go through all of this in detail, but the last three pages are, um, are a series of biblical statements about what it means to be in Christ and who Christ is in you. So can I suggest that you take a moment, uh, like every day, where you do the things that are in bold on the uh, third last page, that page that's got at the top, to be in Christ means that you are an heir to everything he is. Okay? And then right in the middle of the page, I, I, I talk about five things. Number one, proclaim or confess the truth. Take time every day to confess over yourself what God says about you. And so these are a couple of primers. These are some things that you can say. I am chosen by God. I am adopted by God. I am a child of God. I am born again. I have been adopted into the family of God. I'm a new creation. I have a new name. I have a new heart. All of those things and the, and the verses of Scripture that actually say those things. If you really want to see change happen, may I suggest that you memorize some of those. Probably many of you have memorized many verses of the Bible, but let's make a little special practice of memorizing these that speak to identity, our identity in Christ. So proclaim them. Admonish your soul. When you feel like low value, low worth, maybe low hope, David does an amazing thing. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. He does a thing. He admonishes his own soul. He speaks to his soul. He says, hey, David, David, bless the Lord. David, I know you don't feel like it, but bless the Lord anyway. And do not forget his benefits. Call them to mind and give them back to him as praise. Even the ones that, are, that you're still waiting for, give them back to him as praise anyway. Thank him in anticipation. So, admonish your soul. Thirdly, teach your mind. Let your mind be constantly in a process of renewal by replacing old thoughts with new ones. By putting more of, more of those stones, warm stones, into the bucket of cold water. And then apply the truth. Wisdom is simply truth put into action. So wisdom means that you act on the thing that you know to be true. And lastly, seek the kingdom. Put your foot down. You see, there's that text that says that he must reign until he has put his last enemy under his feet. And you know what? In this world and in your world, the only feet he has are yours. Christ lives in you. And so he says, uh, can we please put our foot on that? Can we please put our foot on that? Every place where you put your feet, I've given it to you. So put your foot down on some things that are like bugbears in your life. Put your foot on them and say, I take this territory back for the king of kings. I'm saying over this habit I'm saying over this thought process. I'm saying over this 
sterile area in my life. I'm taking this back. I'm establishing, I'm putting up the flag of the kingdom of God. And I do that by putting my feet. Okay? So do a little like prophetic exercise uh, day by day. So you can, you can read those in your own time and memorize, as I said. And then the last page is also a kind of a chart of your identity in Christ. I've seen these put up on, uh, on uh, fridges, held up with magnets on fridges or on the back of the toilet door. Makes for some good reading while you're otherwise occupied. But let's stand. We've said quite a few things today about those distorted mirrors in our lives and, uh, and how they have lied to us, how they have given us a distorted picture of ourselves. Again, remember this, that the, um, that the, that the reflection in the mirror is not the real you. That's the you that's being reflected to you. And if it has been distorted... Don't take that as your identity. So as I said that, I had a sense that the Lord is putting his finger on some areas of wounding and of distortion in some of your upbringing. So I want to just take authority over that. I want to say over you, in the name of Jesus, You are not what others have said you are. And you are not what you have learned only from yourself to say about yourself. But you are what the creator has said you are. And what he continues to say you are. You are his perfect, wonderful awe-inspiring creation. You are that which he has set, on, on which he has set his love. He has set his love upon you. you. You are that which he runs into the, into the, your world and takes by the hand and says, I'm going to draw you after me so we may run together because I love your company. You are that which when you enter the room, you are a child who when you enter his lounge room, his face lights up. That's why Aaron was told to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you. Let the the Lord's face light up when he sees you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom. And speak into your soul peace. Peace with God. And peace that passes all understanding in the midst of all of your troubles. And the peace that comes from this. You have been justified freely by his grace. 
You are being sanctified constantly by his spirit. And you will be glorified in his presence. Because when you shall see him, you shall be like him. For you will see him as he is. Holy Spirit, come. Bring your life, your power, your goodness, your grace to bear. On every distortion, smooth them out. In fact, in some cases, Lord, just remove that mirror and give us yours. We receive the mirror of your word. We receive the mirror that you hold up in your grace. We receive the mirror that is Christ, that in his life, in his light, we see your glory. We have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would massage these realities into our souls, that we would become receptacles that carry your life to replace our own, your grace to replace our condemnation, your love to replace our apathies. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.